you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. Today we're beginning this journey um, together. We're joining with Christians all over this city and all over our world who are following Christ um, toward the cross and toward Easter. Now, I want to encourage you. There's some important instructions in the back of the worship guide. I want to encourage you to do two things. One, don't read them now. Um, and two, <laughs> read them later when Keith is talking. All right. But I do want to encourage you to mark your calendars and to not just wait until next week to show up for Easter, but to adjust your schedules so that you can join with our church or some church and go through Holy Week with a group. We start, though, Holy Week today with Palm Sunday. Earlier, Keith read to us the story from Luke's gospel about Palm Sunday, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. And what we need to recognize is that this is a moment that is a climactic moment, not just in the life of Jesus, but in the story the Bible tells and in the story of the whole creation. Now, that's why we tried to act it out ourselves together. We're trying to get our imaginations and our bodies and our thoughts and all of who we are to remember a thing happened 2,000 years ago that was essential to the universe. And it happened a long way from here. It happened in Jerusalem when Jesus arrived. And what we see in that moment is that Jesus is being treated like a king. The waving of palm branches was a tradition that Israelites had done for several hundred years when a triumphant king came to the capital city. So you might think of some of the great kind of monuments and carvings that show kings marching into cities. That's exactly what was going on here. And in the story the Bible tells, it wasn't just that Israel's king was showing up in Israel's capital. It was that the king of the universe was showing up in the capital of the universe. Now think about what I'm saying. From the black hole that scientists discovered three years ago on April the 10th today, 55 million light years away. From that black hole to your own personal savings account, Jesus is the king who owns everything. And the reason he's the king is not because he's some jerk. The reason he's the king is because he created everything. He created us, humans. He created the stars. He created all of this stuff. And when he made humans, he made us different from everything else he made. The thing that makes humans different is he put his image in us. We alone, out of all of God's creation, bear his image. And part of what that means is that we're supposed to be like God in the way we behave. In particular, God made humans out of all of his creation to join him in stewarding his creation, 
in having dominion over his creation, in ruling over it, and in cultivating it, and unpacking all of its potential. Now, when I say creation, I don't mean just nature. I mean nature and culture. I mean everything there is. God made humans to draw out of this universe all of the potential that's there to develop this world into a flourishing kingdom. So the same God who called lions and fruit-bearing trees and coral reefs into existence, he generously calls us to join him in caring for this world, this universe that he made. We have this high calling. Our high calling is nothing less than co-ruling and co-loving everything that God made. Now, to understand the triumphal entry, you have to get that. You have to recognize that the God of creation is returning to his creation because something went wrong. All right. So I think to really understand what all the hoopla was about, we need to take our imaginations all the way back to the stuff that's in our stained glass windows. We need to imagine what it must have been like on this earth before the fall. Imagine this world before evil and death showed up. Imagine this world with God's presence and his pleasure radiating life amidst a vast and vibrant garden. Imagine far-flung forest drenched with dew and pools of light. And imagine these forests as they just in the earliest stages begin to bud and swell and sway for the first time. Imagine living creatures beginning to move on the land and in the seas. Imagine as birds begin to fill the heavens and as, as the stars are beginning to come into being. Imagine a bright river flowing out of Eden, splashing its way through rich forest and dividing into four separate headwaters that spill into lands with gold and bdellium and onyx. Imagine all of this brand new bounty. Imagine fruit and flowers unfurling. This is the environment that God made humans and said, here. What an incredibly generous thing, right? This is like you making something amazing and waiting eons of evolutionary time, making it, getting it ready. And then after all of those millennia, all of those millions of years that God doesn't mind taking millions of years to grow a mountain. And then when he gets it all grown up, he makes humans and he gives us his image and he says, here. Now, doesn't that show us how generous God is, that this incredibly generous God brings humans into this amazing creation? And that is the environment, that environment of generosity. That is the environment when the human race doubted God's generosity. Do you see how tragic that is? Can you imagine taking billions of years to make something and to give it to someone as a gift and then they step back and think that you're not kind and generous? That they think you're stingy? When he made stuff for us, we haven't even found yet. 
And humans, we began to doubt God's generosity and the human race succumbed to the deceit of viewing God as a close-fisted curmudgeon. How can anybody look at this universe and think the creator is close-fisted? How can any of us live in this amazing world God's made and think that God is a curmudgeon and we rejected our God-given vocation and we rebelled against God's good and generous kingdom bringing... And when we did that, we brought sin and we brought suffering into every square inch of the universe. The snake and the grass tricked our ancestors into disobedience And the way he did it was by causing them to think God wasn't good and generous. And this rebellion, it resulted in humans being thrown out of God's kingdom and joining the kingdom of darkness where Satan reigns. But God is so full of love. Right there in the face of human rebellion, our generous, kind, faithful, loving, creative creator amazingly promised You think this is good, the best gifts are yet to come. And right there in the garden, on the very scene of humanity's rebellion against God's kingdom, God promised to send a savior. He promised he would return as king of this world, that he would take the weight of our rebellion and the consequences that we set into motion. He would come and he would draw them into a focus and bring them into himself and he would crush the serpent and set his people free so that we could once again be reconciled to God, to ourselves, to each other, and to this world. And it's the climax of that story that caused the people of Jerusalem to erupt and to wave palms and say the king has returned. God is making good on his promise to make all things new. That's why Jesus was so particular about the cult and the tying and the untying. And all of that was because God had been saying for thousands of years, he's going to do this thing. And he had been making these promises out of Genesis chapter 49 and Zechariah chapter 9. That's why the disciples are putting their robes on on the road. And the people are singing the great psalm of praise to the king who returns from Psalm 118. Here, as we think about what happened 2,000 years ago with Jesus riding the donkey, what we need to see is he is the creator who took on flesh, riding into his capital, reclaiming his creation, and inviting all of us to become in him what humans were always meant to be. That's the gospel. That's the news that's so good. At at its heart, the gospel is the good news that God is both bringing his kingdom and welcoming people into his kingdom through forgiveness and through reconciliation. King Jesus is our only savior and forgiveness from sins is the way we come into his kingdom. And that's what's happening in the moment in Palm Sunday when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The king has returned to set up his kingdom, to claim what's rightfully his, to break the bondage that evil has on the human heart, to open the door of the prison so that like Paul and Silas, we can walk out into freedom. But notice verse 39, Luke chapter 19. Notice how... At one point, they waved their palm branches, but notice in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
Tell them to stop treating you like this. And Jesus said, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, this is a cosmic thing that's going on. This isn't just about humans. This isn't just about animate creatures. This is about all of creation. The Pharisees were telling Jesus, stop these people from treating you like a returning king. And he refused to do that. Why? Because this is the return of the king. And if the rocks have to take up the responsibility of the humans, they will do this because this is the moment that the entire story of the universe has been building up to. This is the moment the whole of creation has been longing for. Like Paul said in Romans, all of creation is groaning and longing for humans to finally be set free so they could do what they've been made to do. Now, it's not just the Pharisees who resist Jesus as king. I mean, let's be honest. We tend to have that same kind of pattern of behavior ourselves. Like it says in verse 14, how many of us have said, we don't want this man to reign over us. It's so easy to see Jesus as a man and Christianity as just another religious attempt to control people. There's so many stories that let us off the hook and give us an out. It can be so hard to see that Jesus is the king. What I love is how Jesus responds to that. Verse 42. He's looking at Jerusalem. He weeps. Would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he uses the word shalom, total peace. Peace with ourselves, peace with each other, peace with our creator, peace with the natural world. But they are hidden from your eyes. For all of our blasted talk about freedom, we are not as free as we think. At the end of the day, the real question is not if we will be owned the real question is who will own us? Will we belong to a generous creator? Or will we belong to things like money and sex and power and identity? And if you've ever belonged to one of those things, you know belonging to those things, they are not generous masters. The real question is will we belong to a generous creator or will we belong to something that we give our hearts to that rapes us and ruins us and destroys us? Will we belong to the great and good king? Romans chapter 1 verse 6 says we have been called to belong to Jesus. Too often we want someone to save our souls, to save us from mess, but we don't want someone to rule our lives. And what we see on Palm Sunday is you can't have it that way. Jesus refused, though, thankfully, even there on Palm Sunday, when people were refusing him, he refused to quit the fight. Look at verse 45. As he, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who, who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Now, when you read that, you need to think this is him just refusing to quit. 
daily. He's going right back. I mean, how, how many times do you go back to the people who refuse you and reject you and think that you're being mean when you're actually being kind? But here they are. Here is Jesus. He's going back daily in the temple teaching. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal people of the city were seeking to destroy him. Isn't that amazing? That you can keep rejecting Jesus and he just keeps coming back to you. He just keeps coming to you, keeps offering you. They couldn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus is not here when he's dealing with the temple and he eventually kind of makes this whip and drives these people out. He's not just losing his temper. He's not mounting some angry protest against the commercialization of temple business. He's offering a serious and a solemn warning to his people about the wrath of God. But here's the catch. The wrath of God is not an emotion. It is not an emotion that flares up from time to time because God is patient, but at the end of the day, he's got a temper. That's not what's going on here. To talk about the wrath of God, to hear Jesus describe it in verses 43 to 44, and to see him demonstrate it in verse 45, when we talk about the wrath of God, it is a way of describing God's absolute commitment against all the wrong that is pillaging this world and us. It is God's commitment to set things right. Why? Because he's mean? No, because he made this beautiful world flowing in abundance and he hates mountaintop strip mining more than you do. And he hates families splitting up and ruining people's lives more than you do. And the wrath of God is his settled commitment to let that not be the end of the story. God's wrath is not an emotion. It is a righteous activity to make things good. It is God's intervention on behalf of those who cannot help themselves. We've got to try to understand this, to speak of God's wrath, to see Jesus in the temple expressing the wrath of God. To do this doesn't mean that God is this enraged, vindictive old man. Too many of us have a pagan view of the Christian God. Do you know where you find an angry God in blood, raging, anger, looking for somebody to kill, finding the nearest innocent victim and wiping them out? We find that in pagan religions. The Mayan temples. We find that in Zeus. We find that in Odin. But we do not find that in Scripture. The problem is we take the language about the anger of God and we import it into pagan mythologies. And we assume that's who God is. He's one of these good old-fashioned pagan gods, mad, and he finds the nearest innocent victim. It happens to be a son. He beats the hell out of him, and now he's calm again. Like some man coming home from a hard day at work and kicking the dog. And that, that's taking all of this stuff about God's wrath in the Bible and bringing it into a pagan meta-narrative. But that's not what we see going on here in the temple. It is essential to read the wrath of God in scriptures as symbolic language. It's a figurative way to express God's eternal opposition to breaking things, to the badness, to the evil, to the bondage, to the enslavement, to the brokenness of the world that ravages our lives. Jesus is warning Jerusalem that they are risking the eternal opposition of God because they have a settled commitment to reject the goodness of God. God's justice is not in competition with God's mercy. 
The temple had become the focal point of the nation. It stood in the public imagination as the unshakable promise of Israel's God to keep Israel safe no matter how they behaved. And Israel had to face the challenge that unless the promise God made to them was met from them with faith and obedience, then the promise would count for nothing. It would be worse than nothing. The promise itself at the end of Deuteronomy, God said, would turn into a curse. And it's the same for us. It is the same for those of us who are in God's family. It is the same for those of us who have been baptized and take salvation for granted. In your baptism, you were brought into covenant with a holy God. And so if you are living in disobedience and you are steadfastly refusing his good and generous ways then your disobedience doesn't simply prevent blessings. It makes you move into a place of curse. It calls down the judgment that a weeping and sorrowful God says will be unleashed on his creation. So what about you? Do you want God to save your soul, but you're not up for him Ruling your life, your whole life, all the moments of it, not just your eternal destiny, but your personal life and your political life and your financial life and your sexual life. Will you bow your knee to King Jesus in every square inch of your life when it comes to romance and justice your career choice, and your friendships when it comes to your body and to ecology, when it comes to your hard-earned money? Are you submitting to the king? Are you submitting to Jesus? Will you have him to be your king? Will you live under his rule and share in his work and embrace his mission? Will you lay your garments before him and mean it? Will you enthrone him on your praises? Will you embrace him even when he doesn't meet your expectations? When you disagree with him, will you crown him or crucify him? We must answer one way or the other because when it comes to Jesus, there's no middle ground. He will not enter the gates of our lives as a consultant. That's not the way you welcome a consultant. Palm branches, donkey, robes. He will not enter the gates of our lives as a motivational speaker, providing inspiration, as a genie, granting whatever thing we kind of wish for. He rides in as a triumphant king, or he doesn't come in at all. And he comes in meekness, and he comes in gentleness, but he also comes to cleanse us. And he also comes to destroy the old, bad infections that are in us, and to make us into new people, to make us into a temple fit for him to dwell. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem to give suggestions or tips for better living. In Luke chapter 19, we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem to rule it. And he comes into your life to rule it. Will you let him in? Will you have him in? Will you fight for him? Or are you going to keep fighting against him? It's been said that the essence of sin is putting yourself in the place of the king. And the essence of salvation is putting the king in the place of sinners. 
Will you have the king be your savior? If so, you should know you cannot have his healing touch with a, you know, the woman who wanted his healing touch and nothing else. He said, no, you cannot have his healing touch unless you let him transform you. You cannot have his forgiveness unless you commit to obeying him. His salvation is always a package deal with his kingship. He will not save those he cannot command. And so as we stand here at the beginning of the most important week of the year, we begin Holy Week with the same question that was forced on Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. What are we going to do with the king? What are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to receive him, every one of us, every single one of us, are we going to receive him cross and all? Will we be fickle about Jesus like the crowds? Praising him one day, saying, yeah, that's cool for Sundays, but Mondays I got this other thing going on. Or when it comes to how I'm interacting with this group of people, I got this other thing going on. Are we going to be fickle? Obeying him one moment, disregarding him in another moment? Or will we be completely sold out to Jesus? Now, why in the world would any of us voluntarily give ourselves to a master. If the master was as generous as the creator that made the Rocky Mountains, it's just extravagant. The Shenandoah Valley, I mean, come on now. He could have done a lot less and it's still been amazing. Scientists are discovering whether they take microscopes and go really small or telescopes and go really big. There's not a single square inch of this cosmos that doesn't defy imagination. That's the king who wants to be your master. And this is the king who, when he is your master, all he has is love as a motivation. All he wants is for you to be who you were made to be. He's the generous creator. Are you bending your knee to him as king? Have you yielded to him as your owner? Is there any little part that you're holding back from him? Here's the, here, here's the kindness. He went back daily to the temple teaching. All week long, you're going to have these opportunities to uncover any places in your life that you're afraid to give up to him. And I encourage you, Take this week seriously. I I encourage you to find time this week to open up any hidden place in your life to a king who is so full of creativity and love, he would die for you. I implore you this week, bring every part of your life before King Jesus. Let's pray.